Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Michael Walzer, the great American political theorist and public intellectual who has written 27 books and published more than 300 articles, essays, and book reviews in the New Republic, the New York Times Review of Books, the New Yorker, and elsewhere. His latest book, The Struggle for a Decent Politics, on liberal as an adjective, is a personal one that powerfully and persuasively defends liberalism against its growing ranks of opponents on the left and the right. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book's ideas and arguments, including what it means for liberal to be an adjective rather than a noun. Michael, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. I am eager to talk to you about the book. (laughs) Uh, You start the book with a big argument. You make the case that liberalism as an ideology rooted in free free markets, free trade, a minimal state, radical individualism, civil liberty, religious tolerance, and minority rights is dead. What happened to it? How was it killed? I'm not sure it's dead. It is just incoherent as an ideology these days. Because in Europe, it is still what you described. It is still a kind of right-wing, libertarian, laissez-faire, minimal state ideology. In America, liberalism is New Deal liberalism. It is our very modest version of social democracy. Very modest version, but still our our social democracy. Um, But I I think liberal is more interesting, more important politically, if we think of it as a way that qualifies our other convictions. So if we are a um, a right-wing, laissez-faire conservative, then liberal would describe a more open-minded, less Trumpist or anti-Trumpist version of that politics. Um, if you are a social democrat or a socialist, as I am, liberal describes not a moderate version of socialism, but an anti-authoritarian version of socialism. If you are a liberal Democrat, the the conviction is carried by the noun. A Democrat believes that in government with the consent of the governed and majority rule. And a liberal Democrat is someone who doesn't, who believes that majorities can't do anything they want. They have to be constrained 
by human rights, civil liberties, and some, and the effective um, instrument is um, uh, judicial review. Um, if you're a liberal socialist, you don't believe that the vanguard can tyrannize over everyone else. Um, if you're a liberal nationalist, you believe that every nation has the same rights to self-determination. Um, but I, so liberal connotes a certain quality, a certain sensibility of generosity, open-mindedness, pluralist sensibility that there is more than one of whatever there is. I, I, I like best the definition of my favorite actress, Lauren Bacall, who said a liberal is someone who doesn't have a small mind. And you can attach that notion to different political um, convictions. That's a great starting point, that there are these common ideals or traits shared amongst this group, or maybe put differently, that distinguishes them from the illiberal forces in modern life. Let me take up your argument about liberalism as an adjective. Michael, does liberal as an adjective modify its noun the same way? That is to say, does it essentially have the same meaning, whether it's liberal nationalism or liberal socialism or liberal democracy or whatever? It has possibly somewhat different meanings, but related meanings. A liberal, a liberal um, Democrat would put restrictions on majority rule. A liberal socialist would put restrictions on minority, the rule of the vanguard, the, the people who know the true course of of history, a liberal nationalist puts puts restrictions on what what nationalism means, because it, it a liberal nationalist is someone who recognizes the rights of the nation that comes next. So, um, a liberal Chinese Han nationalist in China would be someone who recognizes the rights of the Tibetan people. A liberal Turkish nationalist who would be someone who recognizes the rights of the Kurds. A liberal Jewish nationalist would be someone who recognizes the rights of the Palestinians. A liberal um, communitarian is someone who who um, insists that there are a multitude of communities um, that coexist within some kind of democratic liberal framework. A liberal feminist. I have a chapter um, written with the cooperation of every woman in my family. A liberal feminist is someone who believes that there are different ways of asserting um, gender equality. I want to ask you about the rise of illiberalism. Let me give one hypothesis. What if it's because liberalism is boring in that its inherent pluralism means that it can't fulfill people's innate need for meaning and purpose. What do you think of that line of argument? Yes, I've often I've heard the same argument about social democracy. Social democracy is boring. Uh, I mean, there are versions of, um, of liberal politics and versions of social democratic politics um, that are um, complacent, moderate in a bad way, too, too moderate. I don't think a, a, a liberal Democrat who really believes 
in um, the rule of the, the consent of the governed, who really believes in the consent of all of the governed. That's not a boring position. It's a position that requires constant struggle because, in fact, in every community, there are excluded groups and oppressed groups. A liberal socialist is not, um, it, it, I suppose you, you could be a boring liberal socialist, but if you're committed to, uh, to an egalitarian society, you've got a lot of fights that you can't avoid, that you have to engage. So I, the, the, a couple of the reviews of my book have, have suggested that I am a, a moderate and fair-minded person, and I don't think that's an accurate description at all. I, I don't think liberal is, equates that way. I don't think liberal, I mean, uh, there is a, a, um, a, a meaning, obviously, in the adjective. Liberal Democrat is against the, the, the rule of a majority that thinks it can do anything it wants, and especially against the rule of a maximal leader who claims to embody the majority. But that doesn't mean um, that you aren't a militant defender of all of the groups excluded from our democracies. It seems to me that one of the challenges for liberalism is that it brings together people who share divergent political preferences. I'm pretty conservative, Michael, and as you say, you're a socialist, and yet we share a commitment to a basic liberal framework. Is it possible in your mind to build a political or even social coalition around liberalism, or do its adherents differ too much for that to be practical? Well, there are real, if, if you are a, a, a liberal conservative, then we have um, important commitments in common. Above all, the commitment not to try to destroy the other. I won't destroy you and you don't destroy me. Um, and that's an important commitment. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't be significantly opposed in, um, in, in the political arena. Right now, I think it is very important to build um, a coalition in America against Trumpism in um, in Israel against uh, the radical ultranationalist right, in Hungary against what Orban calls illiberal democracy. Um, and the, those coalitions can include people who have disagreements over social and economic uh, policy. But once we win, as I hope we will, the battle against illiberal, Trumpist, Orbanist, politics, then we will fight with each other. I read a funny review of the book in preparation for our conversation in which the reviewer, a British intellectual historian, writes that, quote, reading between the lines, we learn that, in fact, Walzer believes that the right, wrong in its continuing adherence to capitalism, but correct in its eschewal of intellectual fashion, currently has a monopoly on political wisdom, unquote. Is there any truth to that interpretation, or do you think he just misread the book? I think he misread the book. <laughs> it is true. The book, um, I, am, I live on the left, and I'm constantly arguing with my neighbors. So um, a lot of the arguments in the book are arguments with leftists that I think are illiberal. But uh, 
I, 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 um, I also have a lot of uh, arguments with um, contemporary conservativism. Look, when I was a kid, I had a close friend. I, t- I talk about this in the book, who was the nephew of the local Republican Party boss in Western Pennsylvania town. We went together to hear Joe McCarthy give one of his diatribes. And I, I was horrified, and my friend was disgusted because he was a liberal Republican. So the two of us could have fought against McCarthyism, which in fact had overwhelming support in the Republican Party. So yes, there are some liberal conservatives these days who in the fights, for example, on campus, are defending free speech, academic freedom against some far left. And yes, I can stand with them. If we win that argument, we're going to have a lot to do. (laughs) Well, let me take up that point because, well, I'm the first to recognize that the right is facing serious challenges with respect to the rise of illiberalism within its ranks. The face of illiberalism on the left can manifest itself somewhat counterintuitively in the form of tolerance. The idea being that true pluralism gives too much deference to ideas or values that are wrong or offensive. What do you think is behind this growing tendency? The tendency to be too tolerant? Is that what you're suggesting? The kind of illiberalism that you describe on campus, I think, has a self-image of tolerance that it is trying to protect different groups from being subjected to ideas or arguments or values that are offensive. But the tools that they use to effectively impose that point of view can themselves be illiberal. Right, and are, in fact, illiberal. I I don't believe in um, restricting the right of speakers on campus to offend some people in the audience. Um, If you're engaged in political life, you have to be prepared to be offended by um, people you you disagree with. Um, On hate speech, on open advocacy of, of violence against minority groups, I would impose restrictions. But on um, ordinary discourse, right and left, ugly sometimes, um, sometimes sentimental, sometimes pious. I, I, I don't want, um, I don't want restrictions, and I don't think that a, um, a a group of people who shout down someone they disagree with on campus because they're afraid that what he says will offend them that that's that that doesn't pass muster as tolerance. It is a radical intolerance, and and um, there is too much of it. It comes on the on the left from militant far left students. It comes on the right from state legislatures who are trying to censor what gets taught in our schools. And those the the struggle against those forms of censorship um, is is a liberal. Struggle and it and it brings together some conservatives and some um, leftists. One of the debates that we're having in Canada is about what, if any, constraints ought to be placed on pluralism 
in a society that's increasingly diverse in its culture, political, and religious values and preferences. The Quebec government, for instance, has passed legislation banning religious symbols for those working in the public service. As a liberal, I'm instinctively imposed to the law, but I wonder if, in your framework, if there's any constraints that ought to be or can be imposed by society on the practice of pluralism. I do think that we can make demands on groups that we tolerate and that we recognize as the legitimate part of the pluralist universe. Um, for example, in some religious communities, in, um, in some evangelical, in some ultra-Orthodox Jewish, in some Muslim communities, um, girls are treated very differently than boys in the educational system. Now, these children are going to grow up to vote in our elections. And so I think we have a right, the, the liberal state has a right to impose a national curriculum on subjects like the history of the country, the meaning of democracy, subjects of that sort, because the education of citizens is something we all have an interest in. Um, parents don't have an exclusive right to their children because they are our future fellow citizens. So that's that's an, an example of, um, of, of restraint. Also, I think um, uh, interventions on things like early or forced marriages on the more radical versions of female circumcision. On, on dress, I have a general wish to, to accept religious forms of, of, of dress, but I do worry about the, the full cover of a woman with just the, the, the hijab with just the slit for the eyes. Um, I talk about that in the, in the book. Um, uh, I think, first of all, the state has a right to require in, in a courtroom, in a passport office, uh, a right to require a, that the face be uncovered. And I wonder about education. Um, I, find, I once lectured at an English university where there were a number of women in the full cover. And... Um, one of them, there was a discussion in class, and many of them spoke. And afterwards, one of them came up to me, and I couldn't tell what she had said before because I couldn't see her face. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it might, it might be legitimate in educational settings to insist on um, at least uh, the face, even if the hair is covered and the body is covered. Um, we we live face to face, and in some circumstances, I think that might be legitimate to impose um, a commitment to uh, to show your face. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I would I would tolerate. I think you suggested you would um, religious symbols in uh, in a pluralist society. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was 
dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, it's obviously a tension, but my commitment to pluralism and minority rights trumps whatever my personal preferences may be. And I think that the challenge that Canada and other similar countries are working through is where are those lines and how do we think about them? And as you say, there are some practicalities that we have to account for to say nothing of ultimately ensuring that those living within our society have access to all the same rights um, that, uh, that their fellow citizens do. Michael, another debate that we're having here in Canada was set off by an assertion by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau several years ago that Canada is a post-national state. I think his comment has been somewhat unfairly characterized by some on the right, but it does prompt the question, well, pluralism is a necessary framework for living together in a diverse society. Is there a risk that it's insufficient as a source of shared citizenship? And if so, do we need something more to provide for a sense of national identity? Yes. Um, well, there are different kinds of countries in the world, and pluralists have to recognize that. The old nation states, which had an overwhelming majority of a particular ethnic or religious group, um, are very, very different from newer immigrant societies <clears throat> that have a very large number of, of different ethnic ethnic groups, um, the United States, and I think Canada also, are not only multi-ethnic, but multi-religious, multi-racial. Um, so yes, in, in societies of that sort, you do have to look for a, um, a, a unifying theme, and I would find it, being a liberal Democrat, in citizenship, uh, in the idea of a common politics, a common political commitment. Um, now that can be a little crazy. I mean, in a country with a, in a country like the United States, we, we have this, we had the phenomenon of the Un-American Activities Committee. And you never have in Italy, there's never been an un-Italian, uh, legislative committee or because they're held together by their Italianness and be an Italian communist and still be an Italian. Uh, in America, we don't have that kind of ethnic uh, coherence. And so we are held together by our political commitments. In this country, it's the Constitution, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, all of that. Um, and so it, it, it makes sense, although I, I hated the Un-American Activities Committee. They were on to something because it is our politics that holds us together and not our ethnicity and and not um increasingly it's not our whiteness or our protestantness it's not that the there there is no longer a clear ethnic majority in this in in this country and probably not in your country so we uh th there has to be a stress on the meaning and value of citizenship and that also means the right, it elevates the importance of education and, and it elevates the right of the state to insist on um, a, a national curriculum. I should say, 
Michael, that as a matter of temperament, I share your aspiration for a decent politics. But I suspect some would argue that the sources of our current political debates, which seem to have shifted from how we organize our political economy, deeper questions about identity and culture, are zero-sum and too fundamental for niceties. How would you respond to that argument? Well, first, it's it's true. There has been a shift to a cultural politics. Um, and it is uh, it has to do with, um, it is especially prevalent in immigrant societies or societies that feel themselves threatened by uh, immigration, often absurdly threatened. I mean, um, some years ago, a right-wing Polish politician opposed the admission of 5,000 Syrian refugees because it would undermine the Polishness of Poland. There are 38 million Poles. So cultural politics can be um, absurd. Um, but there is, an, um, there is a, a threat in the modern, a sense in the modern world of, of being under cultural threat, different groups being under cultural threat. And uh, I, I, I don't know exactly how to deal politically with that, with that view. A lot of the struggle has to be internal to each group. In the Jewish community, I have to be a liberal Jew who says that there are many ways of being Jewish. It, Jewishness has changed over the years and will continue to change. There is no single version of Judaism that has to be defended forever. So uh, if there are people within the cult cultural communities advocating the kind of uh, against small-minded versions of the cultural nationalism, um, we will obviously be much better off. But how to deal with that in national politics I, I am I am unsure, and I keep coming back because I am an old leftist. I keep coming back to issues of 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 class, the the alienation from democratic center left politics of the American white working class is in part due to the abandonment of the the working class by. Um, Americans who called themselves liberals. In, in the Clinton administration, there was a conscious decision. We can win elections with the professional middle class and the minorities together. That would be a much, we could win elections without our old industrial base. And those, those workers felt abandoned. And one of the forms of resentment, of resentment that that abandonment fuels is a sense of we're being abandoned because we are poor whites, white trash. We're being, um, and and the 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 blacks and the Hispanics and everybody else is being privileged over, and we are being abandoned. And so the the class issues fuel the cultural issues. And one way to deal with that is to resolve the class issues. Let me follow up on that, Michael, because that's a tremendous insight. Do you see signs that within center left or left wing politics of reckoning with those issues? I would just say in parentheses, we've seen 
broadly similar trends in Canada. We just had an election in our largest province, Ontario. And for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, perhaps any time in the past several decades, a, a number of trade unions actually endorsed the center-right party because of a sense that the traditional left-wing parties were more interested in some of these issues of culture and identity and less so sort of bread and butter economic issues rooted in a conception or an understanding of class. So that's a long way of saying, I suppose, that we're seeing broadly similar trends here in Canada. And it's not obvious to me that the left has yet reckoned with the consequences of those political choices. Is there reason to think that we may see progress along those lines in the United States? Well, I think we have seen some progress, um, but stalemated by the failures of the Democrats in the House and the Senate to sustain a strong majority. But Biden came into office really prepared to be a New Deal Democrat, um, really wanting to play that that role and to reestablish ties with with uh, the, the working class and to abandon neoliberal economics. In fact, a number of the people in the Biden administration are Clinton people who were shocked by the 2016 election and realized that they were in part responsible for what happened to Hillary Clinton and to the Democratic Party. And some of them are in the Biden administration and they are trying to, to reverse what they did um, in the Clinton in the 90s. But um American politics at this point, they have a a razor thin majority in the Senate and they have lost the House. And any ambitious kind of New Deal program is temporarily on on hold, really. You've been self-critical of developments on the political left. Let me ask you to try to empathize with developments on the political right. How has American conservatism gone from, say, the presidential candidacies of John McCain or Mitt Romney to a party that now seems dominated by any liberal figure like Donald Trump? How did that transformation occur? What were the underlying causes or factors in your mind? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with Donald Trump, um, uh, the role of a, of, a, of a demagogue in politics. Of course, he found. He found um, a, a following, but um, it's not clear that the following would have materialized without the leader. Imagine that, um, what's his name, the Bush from Florida had won the, the, the nomination in 2016. We would have had what might have been a, a boring conservative, conservative politics um, without the, the 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 fury and the zealotry and the and the viciousness of Trumpism. So in in any society, you should not underestimate the role. I mean, that's a major philosophical historical issue: the role of individuals in history. But Trump su- suggests that the role is can be substantial. That's a fascinating insight. That in effect, supply has created political demand. And the question for me, at least, as a, as you put it, liberal conservative, is how does American conservatism get back on track? Do you have a sense? Well, there are never Trumpers. 
um, on the right, the old, so a whole group of uh, neoconservatives in this country have um, produced a, I, mean, I still have a lot of disagreements with them, produced a, a liberal version of neocon politics. And it can be quite forceful in, in the, in, in opposing Trump, Trumpism in the, in the party so far, not successfully. And then we do have to recognize what we talked about before, that there is a, um, a large part of the American um, middle class, lower middle class, working class, who feel that they are being left behind um, by the professional elite, by the uh, globalizing elite. And the, the left has to, have a, has to find a way of talking to those people. And Scranton Joe, yes, almost, but we need someone younger and stronger. An ultimate question. Have you found yourself becoming more liberal in the face of these illiberal threats? And if so, is that a sign that liberalism may actually be capable of defending itself? I think that I was always <laughs> a liberal social democrat or a liberal socialist. Um, I was mentored by the, the, the people who write, who founded the magazine Dissent, which I helped to edit for many years. And they were all ex-Trotskyists. They had broken with that kind of sectarian politics. And they had become, and it took a few years for them to acknowledge it, they had become liberals. Liberals, but still believers in an egalitarian society. And at one point, Irving Howe wrote an article called, uh, in Dissent Magazine, called Articles of Reconciliation, Liberals and Liberalism and Socialism, Articles of Reconciliation. So it, it, my politics was, I learned it from those people. I, I would just say in parentheses, Michael, that I've surprised myself that in response to some of these developments, I'm more liberal than I thought I was. I've had this instinctive recoil in the face of illiberal arguments that I didn't fully appreciate I had in me. But when I've seen some of the developments on the right, I've come out of this tumultuous experience more attuned to and deeply committed to liberalism than I think I would have predicted. It's not that I had illiberal predispositions. I didn't realize how important it was to my political identity until it was under threat, particularly by people who purported to speak for a set of ideas and values and beliefs that I myself subscribe to. Well, I hope there are many, many people uh, like you who are more liberal than they thought they were. <laughs> Which is a good way to wrap up our conversation. What are the reasons or signs to be optimistic that we can restore a decent politics. Well, when, whenever there are um, uprisings, look, uh, right now I'm very involved in Israeli politics, and um, I am enormously heartened by the extent of the uprising against an, an, a, a radically illiberal uh, government. But I've, I've also come to rethink and value certain kinds of small victories from the past that I think, uh, I write about this somewhere. Um, in my hometown, a steel town, a union town, a democratic town, 
It was a steel town with a, with a steel company that gov- ruled the town until the union came. When the union came, the town changed. The workers had more money. I, they became consumers. I've never been against consumerism for, for that experience, that moment. And the whole civil service of the town, once the union was, a, the civil service of the town became more civil to all, to everybody. And that kind of, you have to, the left has neglected victories of that kind. I think we have to reemphasize the local because we can, even when we don't win nationally, there are a lot of local victories to be won of that of that kind that changed the lives of ordinary people. Yeah, well said, Michael. I think starting small is a good instruction manual for pushing back against these illiberal trends and restoring a decent politics. Michael Walzer. Thank you so much for joining us. For listeners, the book is The Struggle for a Decent Politics, On Liberal as an Adjective. What a tremendous honor to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.